I now believe it to be the ghost of Catherine Patterson, the grand dame of the house, uh, the wife of former U.S. Senator Thomas Patterson. And she said, get off the fucking grass. Literally, right in my ear. I remember it like it was yesterday. So no, I came into it charged where the house was uh, active or spirited or, or purportedly haunted. I had an experience on first encounter. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me as always is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Chris Chiari, founder and CEO of 420 Hotels. Chris, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. Good morning. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Excited to talk about Chris with uh, cannabis and hospitality and kind of learn a lot more. How are you, Brian? I'm doing well, and I'm excited to talk to a guy with East Coast Roots who has (laughs) locations on the West Coast, but East Coast Roots for the record. So Chris, for our listeners unfamiliar, can you share a little background about yourself? Uh, Favorite sound in regulated cannabis. That's the opening of a of a jar. Uh, I am a cannabis consumer, but now ask your question again, because I just wanted to get that point out. (laughs) Well, well, Well done. A little background about yourself. I've been a consumer for over 30 years. Um... Melanoma survivor. When I was 27, I was told, don't make long-term plans. I was always a planner. I actually uh, was finding some success doing marketing and messaging for startups in the irrational exuberance of the late 90s and early 2000. But someone giving you five to eight years kind of changes your perspective. If you like plans, you throw them out. Uh, In that case, it was about experience, about a bucket list, about checking off things that I wanted to accomplish and what was now this uh, shortened timeline. I'm now a multi-time, multi-state failed political candidate. I've got that out of my system. Uh, But 11 years ago, I got a clean bill of health. And a doctor said we had cut enough moles off melanoma. He said, right, it's the one that can kill you. It's the most dangerous of the skin cancers, but it's the one that if you get ahead of it, you cut it, you get it, you can get it. And uh, I was lucky enough that it was big and they went deep enough and they got it all uh, now 12 years ago. I'm sorry, more than that. It's 20, 22 years ago now. It was uh, the summer of 2001. Um, and fast forward, I get this clean bill of health. And within weeks, I realized that with this new lease on life, that whatever I did, marketing and messaging for startups, doing consulting for businesses, if I got back into the policy or political world, that everything, if I tried to make a film, something I had tried to do at 27 years old, right before the diagnosis, I said it would be and would lead and would be focused on the topic of cannabis. And that has been true. Uh, March 7th of 2011, I was in Denver, Colorado for the first time. And I was standing on the street in front of this extraordinary property, 420 East 11th Avenue. It was an abandoned, looked like a castle, a French chateau, sitting on a hill. And I pointed up to that house and I said, I want to turn you into a marijuana bed and breakfast. Missed out on the property by two weeks, bought it four years ago, and I'm now on the cusp of executing on that very idea. Who am I? I'm a stoner. I'm a cannabis consumer who has been passionate about what was always so unique about cannabis from day one. And the first time I experienced it, it was generous. It was given. It was shared. It was community. And what's funny is, as I'm on the cusp of getting this license, I put a social media post up. And an old friend from college said... I'm so happy for you. I'm so proud of you because when we were 18, I remember you on the quad with your guitar saying that one day you were going to make a safe legal place for your friends to smoke weed together. And I honestly didn't remember that, um, but it was fun, right? Relationships that then have that measure of time attached uh, to realize that your life's work really is your life's work. So who am I? A stoner trying my best to normalize and destigmatize cannabis. Um, and contribute to the good work that all of us in this space have been doing for, in some cases, generations, the legacy markets, and now with over a decade in the legal markets. When you were trying to buy that property and you said what you wanted to turn into, were people telling you you were crazy with their hesitations then to make those announcements? Because you could have kept it pretty close to the vest and then made those attempts. So take us through that conversation. I had a reaction from a parent who immediately expressed concern. Do I need to be worried? You're you're dropping everything. You're selling your house in Florida. You're going to immerse your life in this still illegal space. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my late 40s. So my parents would tell you that never in their lifetime would they have imagined. But I did. I sold the house in Florida. I ended up on a road trip, uh, 115,000 miles over 22 months crisscrossing the country. Uh, one cannabis cup to bong and pipe trade show to another. And along that way, met 
uh, people that were, like I said, generous with their information, with the flower they'd cultivated, with a willingness to give you a tour of what in some cases proved to be multi-generational operations uh, from the um, genetics to the terroir and with the expression of different uh, cannabis strains in different regions of the country. Things I didn't know because I got sticks and stems you know, downtown Brown, it was all smushed together with uh, right flattened weed in a in a in a in a baggie. I asked the guy I got it from, what, what strain is it? He said it's a bag of weed. Do you want it or get out? <laughs> right now, go into a store, experience. Right, what have we gotten to? What have we developed to? Um, is exciting, but still lacking in this legal licensed space where we can consume it. Yes, outside New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, anywhere back east that's now normalizing, legalizing, consume cannabis anywhere you can smoke a cigarette. And where exactly can you smoke a cigarette in any of these jurisdictions? And like there, like here in Colorado, a mature bureaucracy, if you want to bring it indoors, you'll bring it indoors very much like a cigar lounge. And that's what I'm doing. Uh, what did it look like? Who thought the, along the way that it was the most uh, ridiculous idea? Well, virtually anyone. Uh, I think the most ridiculous thing is that we're this deep into legalization and normalization, and I'm the one bringing to market the first hotel to bring this and add this as amenity. I'll take it. I'm proud of that work. I'm proud of this business. I'm really excited to share this location, and I believe this is foundational and keystone to a bigger brand. And so I'll do that work. Um, and it will be crowded and we'll have lounges in lots of places and lots of iterations of it. And I cannot wait. The more people strive to bring this to market and the more of us that can find a path and succeed and execute, the closer we truly get to the end of that war on drugs and cannabis, which yeah, we haven't wanna, yet gotten to. Yeah, um, well said. I want to stay on the hotel. I mean, was there prior to purchasing it? I mean, the location you described, uh, the Patterson Inn, correct, was yes. its old name. Um, it was it would spin uh regarded as one of the most haunted hotels in, in Colorado, correct? So I was there any hesitancy? Like talk us through that whole uh thought process, like getting involved in that. What was where was your what was your head at? Um just to let you know, Patterson Inn, Pattersonin.com is now a nine plus year operating boutique hotel, uh, one of the highest uh, rated boutique hotels in Denver since I took over. And I'm proud of that because I didn't want someone to ever look at the addition of cannabis and say it was shtick or a gimmick. Smart. Something that was, you know, yeah. could diminish the work that I'm executing and bringing to market a four-star hospitality experience. Uh, the property does have a tavern on site that is open to the public, recently opened just a few months ago. And so I'm working to bundle and bring these non-conforming, conflicting businesses and finding a path to execute them in this 12,000 square foot French chateau at thankfully 420 East 11th. Uh, so Patterson and will survive. The 420 Denver is uh, our hospitality lounge and Colorado entity that's operated and now suitable and is moving into the build out for um, opening. And then 12 Spirits Tavern, named after, yes, what is purported to be as many as 12 spirits that are uh, storied to occupy the house. Um, when I looked at the property originally, I did not know when I set off to Denver to look at the house. But not two days later, a good friend of mine in the political research space in South Florida, by the time I got here, I had an email that had every link to every story. And I had the haunted narrative from the original owner to um, the you know, loss of family members and the story that he left after you know, only a few months of living there, all the way through a story from the 70s where two guard dogs, two uh, gray Dobermans were put in the house for a night and were not found alive the next day. In fact, were found dead on the front lawn. Uh, this makes it into the paper. I saw the picture many years ago. Every ghost tour comes by. And I like to joke that in life, right, everyone knows you get 15 minutes of fame. Well, I squandered 12 of those 15 minutes on an episode of Portals to Hell with Jack Osborne. The house is known as the Croke Patterson, C-R-O-K-E hyphen P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N, Croke Patterson. We're still considered in there now four seasons, one of the higher rated episodes as they came and spent a week in the house. Um, when I bought the hotel, the last owner said, shh, we don't talk about the haunting. And they'd whisper it. They said that at every in uh, group they went to in these conferences with other hotel owners, nobody talked about the haunting of the hotel. And then I have this episode air, uh, May of 2020, four days before my two-year anniversary, 
And maybe a week after we were forced to close down in the very unexpected world that we all experienced in 2020. And I just remember thinking, okay, great. And then the, we opened back up and Portals to Hell has aired. And now forget about whispering about it. I'm a nine-room hotel. We would be sold out in the middle of the peak of the pandemic. I was sold out every single weekend with ghost enthusiasts that were both believers and skeptics. And I like to say now, after almost two years of that, that I am enriched by their experiences and stories of both the believers and the skeptics, in many cases, armed with equipment and showing me uh, pictures of the orbs they've seen in the rooms. And so I can't, I can't dismiss it. And now, in fact, March 7th of 2011, I stood in front of that house and I pointed up and I said, I want to turn you into a marijuana bed and breakfast. And a woman's voice, I now believe it to be the ghost of Catherine Patterson, the grand dame of the house, uh, the wife of former U.S. Senator Thomas Patterson. And she said, get off the fucking grass. Literally, right in my ear. I remember it like it was yesterday. So no, I came into a charge to where the house was uh, active or spirited or or purportedly haunted. I had an experience on first encounter, but yet I still bought it and uh, made it through COVID, made it through portals to hell, enriched and can disprove many of the things by walking you through why the stairs squeak at the same note, the right time of night by yourself in a very quiet, beautiful uh, house. Uh, Creeks, what are they? And are they the spirits that reside in the homes following you up the stairs? I could give you a hundred guests that would tell you very clearly that's exactly what that was. <laughs> so can we anticipate a cannabis-induced ghost tour in the future? Is that something that we can look forward to when we visit the property? I am grateful to the very restrictive rules around cannabis hospitality where I have to segment it to this very isolated place on the property because one one of my biggest fears is that maybe cannabis smoke might be a, a smudge and smudge all the ghosts out of my hotel. So no, I I, I need to like preserve Patterson in its history. And then, um, yes, no, that would be ghost tours. I am starting that process uh, when I'm on site, certainly when guests have seen the episode of Portals to Hell. I know that there's value, right? And the house, this property was there in their living room. Now they're getting to experience it. So there's that heightened value for them. And so I take that time to, to give that tour. The house, I am the caretaker of this physical structure and the caretaker of the history of this 130-year-old property, a house that has a storied history long before I showed up. And to that history, I am working to add, again, what is the most exciting to me, the most exciting and unique amenity and hospitality today is this now privileged license around cannabis hospitality. I use that term because alcohol, gaming, uh, tobacco, the restaurant, these fall under these categories of privileged licenses. You fill out these applications, you go through both state and local um, uh, scrutiny, and then you move to proceed to opening. That is where a cannabis policy and regulation has matured to a point of, of good bureaucracy. I hate to use the word good, but bureaucracy that you can understand if you've ever navigated liquor or these other privileged licenses. What are some of these rules you had to navigate? You you said that you couldn't mix the two of them together. So tell us what was some of the rules when you got that license that, that restricted you from doing certain things or allowed you to do other certain things? Well, anything that becomes a cannabis consumption area has to be locked down at 2 a.m. So anyone who remembers the early day of going to events in the cannabis space, we'd have alcohol and music and vendors inside with their, with their displays. And then we'd go outside to a bus, a van, an Airstream, or a couple of the companies that emerged that offered cannabis tourism. And then we'd get high on the bus. Well, under the rules around cannabis hospitality, if I designate the entire hotel as a cannabis consumption area, then I can welcome you into the hotel. But at 2 a.m., I got to kick you out to a bunk in an RV out front and make sure you come back in at 7 a.m. for breakfast and we'll hold your luggage for you. Didn't really fit with overnight hospitality. Uh, for me, that's my core business. I'm a hotel. I see adding cannabis as a really fun and exciting reason to reach out to my current guests, my previous guests, and to likely attract someone to this property that may have never heard about it. And as a nine room on our way to 11 room property might not have because we're still independent and small. But this becomes a great oversized reason to communicate. Um, and uh, though other lounges are now starting to emerge here in the, in the greater metro area, 
They are open to the public. They are meant to be a really fun place on a Saturday or Sunday or Saturday night or Friday night. And my space is really being carved out as this more intimate private space with an eye more towards food and beverage and dining, as well as this um, more restrictive access space for the can of curious. Uh, largest growth segment of cannabis consumers are 55 plus, maybe even 60 plus. Also happens to be a peak core baseline of my larger demographic of the, of the customers that already come to my hotel. So Chris, you said you dipped your toe in politics uh, a little while back in your life. Um, how much did you participate in um, kind of some of the public commentary to draft these rules and regulations for consumption lounges? Was that something you were actively attending no, the meetings and the conversations no. or did you just let it kind of roll out? I got here after Amendment 64, mm-hmm. bought the hotel. So much of the final rulemaking um, around cannabis hospitality happened once I bought the hotel. Okay. So, yes, I've spoken to many elected officials. Yes, I was engaged in topics and conversations, especially with people in industry. Yes, you know, groups like Normal engaged in those types of discussions. But at the other note, so much of it becomes out of your control. You know, I had the issue of how to get the badge and what the pathway to suitability would look like. Would there be restrictions or not? What would that look like? Would the property be suitable? You know, the city had to still figure out. There was one talk. It could be 500 feet from some things. It could have been greater than 1,000 feet. I had heard from the city years ago that miraculously, this property at 420 East 11th was a green dot in a sea of red, but Denver no longer provides that suitability map. You have to get it yourself. And so at what point is it worth it to invest with its thousands of dollars for a detailed engineering survey of a lot and your distance restrictions from other properties? And that happened finally um, after I was well down the path to a rezoning. So while the, all of these things were happening, I had a hotel to run. I had a pandemic to navigate through. I had a core group of employees that had been loyal to the business we were building and the culture we created. And I made sure that the business was loyal to them. Uh, and we got through that. I had a rezone. Uh, when, I, when I first reached out to the city to say, this is what I'm going to do, they said, Chris, green dot in a sea of red, but you're in a residential building with a use overlay to be a hotel, meaning it's a residential property that had this unique special right to run this one type of business. Uh, commercial rezoning in the middle of a residential portion of Capitol Hill. Some people, if you want to say who would have told me I was crazy, that might have fallen in there as that category. Uh, But we started the process. And along that route, the community group, uh, Capitol Hill United Neighborhoods, gave me a 29 to nothing vote in support of a rezoning commercial and opening the bar to the public for the first time, which again, like I said, did happen a couple months ago. Um, The next piece of that hurdle was Denver had to come up with rules. Denver finally comes up with rules. I'm still in the middle of the rezoning. I enter into a refinance. So, you know, business in the world we're in gave and shared its fair share of challenges that sometimes that ability to sit through multiple committee meetings to make in policy what is known as a camel is not always the time you have available to commit. And it makes it unfortunate because those of us that are executing these business models have not been invited into those committees. Even after achieving licensing, it's the same industry players that come year after year uh, that get the same seat time after time and continue to make what they believe is good policy. But I would argue that I would say this, the MED in Colorado right now is a Porsche boxer. It looks like this gorgeous national standard. But if you open the boot or the bonnet, you can't find the engine. And so someday someone might come looking. And if they don't find the engine, will we really hold the gold standard? And so my approach isn't, okay, let's, it's all broken. It's no. My approach is those of us in industry that recognize the urgency of good practices will establish those good practices through industry and will actually always be one step ahead of the state's desire to further scrutinize or regulate because we are working diligently to execute a clear, transparent, and successful market. And many, if not most of the operators are there. Some kind of look at this as their own personal fiefdom and will make policy or try to direct things that will benefit one but not necessarily benefit the bigger thing we're working towards. Done, soapbox, it's it's away. (laughs) I read that your property has five licenses. I'm curious to know, is the cannabis license harder to get than the others? And if not, when you were going through that process, was it one where they said, if you get this, you can't do 
you can't do alcohol. How did that work? Not five licenses, but five businesses to get to where I am right now. So the property does hold and was originally a hotel restaurant with a tavern live entertainment license. And then I add cannabis hospitality, which by rule can be adjacent to each other on a commercial property, but not accessible. And so under the code, you have this with these two languages. And someone said, call your business cannabis adjacent the other day on LinkedIn. But in fact, the reason I can't use that term and wouldn't is because adjacent is actually a zoning code term that anyone in that space would understand. And so in fact, I'm not adjacent, I'm accessible. Uh, and that means that that ability to move between the two. Uh, right now, the property is a Nevada C-Corp. I am actively involved in raising funds on a crowdfund campaign for equity on republic.com. And so I'm selling equity as stock future stock in a Nevada C-Corp called the 420 Hotels. Not trying to ask people to invest in a one-off, but actually buying into the entity that intends to manage and own multiple properties in multiple cities. Uh, right now, that company does have three wholly owned subsidiaries. One is Castle Equality, which is the company that actually owns the physical property. It has three tenants. One of them is Patterson Inn, which will stay on as the operator of this historic boutique hotel after the namesake of U.S. Senator Thomas Patterson, who is no less significant to the property after my addition of the lounge as he is today. Um, 12 Spirits Tavern is now a separate tavern entity that exists in a separate commercial tenant space in the basement. And then the 420 Denver is the Cannabis Hospitality Lounge. And if anyone were to go to pattersonin.com, the first picture you'd see is this French chateau, about 12,000 square feet. Uh, the larger structure on the left is the nine-room boutique hotel with the open operating tavern in the basement. And then the cannabis lounge will be about 1,000 square feet of the first floor of the carriage house. And then the way the two properties are offset by half a floor, we have easy access to add more guest rooms above the carriage house. I always joke with guests if they know the difference between a bed and breakfast and a boutique hotel. And I say it's actually the number of doilies on the property. So we're a doily-free property. That makes us a boutique hotel. Uh, technically, it's 10 or less as bed and breakfast. 11 and up is boutique hotel. So adding two more rooms to my nine-room property takes us from bed and breakfast to boutique hotel. And that was my goal, to take this three-star bed and breakfast, add that tavern to add the higher scrutiny and level of more amenity, which we have, add more guest rooms to make us a boutique hotel, and then add, and I'm going to just keep beating this phrase, the most exciting and unique amenity and hospitality today. It, I mean, it's challenging to set up your business in that way, but it's probably necessary given all the rules and challenges in cannabis, right? I, I'd imagine that wasn't an intention. You were like, let's have all these different curves. You had to no, do so. No, I would say this. Now, you asked this question. This is where, and a lot of people say, oh my God, cannabis, I wish they would regulate it like alcohol. Um, I have a liquor license in the state of Colorado. I know what it means to navigate a change of ownership, a renewal, and a transfer of ownership of a liquor license in the state of Colorado. I've been badged in the cannabis industry, both through a dispensary and now through cannabis hospitality for six years. Also many years back when I went from minimum wage jobs to getting lucky in that irrational exuberance and had a horse once. Uh, that horse exposed me to being licensed in five states for paramutual, which is gaming. And so I've held privileged licenses in gaming in five states and now alcohol and cannabis in the state of Colorado. And I was laughing with one of the originators of 64. We were at a fundraiser for a political candidate maybe two weeks ago. And I said, you might not know this, but if you own a horse and your horse is racing at the track and you are behind the scenes at that track, you are required to wear your state-issued ID around your, a lanyard on your neck just like we do here in the cannabis industry. And he laughed. He said, I don't know if you know this, but the very first director of the MED that then Governor Hickenlooper had appointed came from gaming. And so the bureaucracy that does regulate the Marijuana Enforcement Division is a pretty sophisticated combination of paramutual and alcohol, both regulated by the same division, the Department of Revenue, and that is true in all states that cover those types of licensing as well as cannabis. And so we actually do regulate. Now, do we tax it the same? When you really get down to the fact that corn taxed for grain is one tax rate, corn moving into production for alcohol is taxed at another tax rate. A lot of people don't realize that. 
that the multiple layers of taxation as you go through processing an alcohol, because once the grain is fermented and then transferred and, and brewed, and then yeah, each of these stages creates different layers of taxation, which compound. So in some ways, the tax structure in cannabis, though onerous and high, is less complex or layered as alcohol can get. Uh, but that's also we haven't gotten to federal yet. So once we do, we'll be just like alcohol. So everyone's going to keep asking. I hope they regulate like alcohol one day. And I can promise you they're on their way to doing that. But it's not that far off today. And holding all these privileged licenses, I can tell you that. Do you think that's good or bad? It's good from the sense that there is a pathway, right? In economics, in business, there is that element called widget. What that means is in every deal, in anything you can do to build a business, there are very key core foundational elements that are the same. And the better you get at recognizing the similarities and getting through that work with efficiency, the more time you can spend on the things that are unique or nuanced. In my case, I had no hospitality experience when I started. Surrounded by hospitality uh, professionals, have learned and been cross-trained and now hold serve safe uh, manager safe food safety certifications and now being cross-trained to be one of the bartenders the bar is opening. One, you shouldn't conduct an orchestra where you can't play the instruments. But also, I said before, I'm trying to create a culture with the team. And that culture means respecting everyone and the fact that life sometimes happens. And I still have to execute my business. So I can't get mad at an employee because life happens. I have to support a team member who's going through crisis. And then we play the old triangle uh, layers, uh, Lakers defense and we shift positions and move in and fill in the gaps to keep executing and be supportive of the business to execute, which we have to do because we're a hotel. We're open 365 days a year and on a small team of only seven core employees. Um, and so you step in and, and do that work. So um, uh -huh. cross train and everything, including making breakfast. So with cross-training and having employees step in, how does it work from, do all the employees have to go through the MED badge process? And then do I also have to go through kind of like standard liquor training and they can kind of be like one-side No, right? I'm cross-trained so I can be fluid. My GM can certainly handle all those capacities. I already hold my badge and he will be badged as well once mm -hmm. we uh, have the lounge open. Staff, as far as the bartenders step up into an innkeeping position when needed, right? Housekeeping and, and innkeepers support each other as we move through busier yeah. days as we need to get work done inside the house and then through the rooms. And then what will happen is the cannabis lounge isn't open yet, but we will be open for 16 hours a day. It will be 8 a.m. to midnight. The plan is that it's going to be open every single day. And under the rules, it has to be staffed that entire time. So the intention is that the staffer in that space will be, in a sense, on call or in the space when a guest is there, and when not, would then slide back into the house. So they'll be in a position to support the house, but the house will not always be in a position to support the lounge, and that'll just become one of those places. You can go in one direction on some things, but you can't flow backwards. Uh, and so we'll have that because I have alcohol and cannabis now on the same property, Guests can go into the bar, purchase alcohol, bring it back into the room or into any other common area of the property to consume. There's a big difference between alcohol and cannabis. Point of sale and purchase has to be the bar. But once the sale and the transfers occurred, its consumption can be in a common area. Cannabis, though, is isolated to the lounge, one, because you have to lock it down at a particular hour. But the last piece of that hurdle is the requirement from an air handling perspective. So I don't know if you've ever been in a cigar lounge, but if you've been in one, it likely is older than 12 years. The reason it's older than 12 years is it's grandfathered in in the air quality standards because 11 or 12 years ago, international standards around clean air in a smoke-filled environment were defined as 60 cubic feet per minute per person. That's a lot of air and it's actually 100 times the normal standard for a commercial space. And so very few hookah lounge or cigar lounges have emerged in America since then, unless they have built these very expensive and sophisticated ventilation systems. Lucky for me, I'm only a thousand square feet. I need to negatively charge the room by design of this code, which means air sucking in through any gap under a door or in a window, as opposed to smoke or any odor being able to get out. And that's the biggest hurdle so far has been getting this lockdown final design for an HVAC system taking in all these considerations and dealing with it and trying to put it into this old historic property. Um, but that's this, this, this last great hurdle. Uh, and some of the lounges that are opening that are in unincorporated counties, 
air handling and air quality is usually administered not by the state, but by a local county or a city. And so you'll often find uh, parts of America where you have what are known as unincorporated areas where they don't officially fall into a city. And if their counties don't regulate or, uh, or uh, justify or, or oversight over air handling, these operations have found ways to open without needing to do these types of retrofits. I'm looking to open in New York, Boston, Chicago, Miami, and Denver. Every one of these which we, which is what you'd be able to call a mature bureaucracy. And so we're building a system that we intend to be able to scale to these other locations. I can only imagine the levels of training that have to go on for your staff. We talked about the alcohol challenges and the cannabis challenges, and then even to communicate that information to probably poor patrons, right? Who are a couple of drinks in, interested in this, kind of wandering between stuff. That has to be so challenging for your staff. So how do you do the education and how do you communicate that to consumers? The bar is four to nine. We're happy hour only, but that's going from an amenity that was open just to guests of the hotel for one hour a night for a free glass of wine. Now it's uh, signature crafted cocktails and bourbon drinks, a small light tavern food menu, and a pretty extensive uh, premium and select no well alcohol list for anything else you might want on top of that. Um, so four to nine kind of keeps us out of the switching hours of causing too much trouble or getting in too much trouble. But bartenders, you don't bring a bartender on that doesn't know, right? That check ID, recognize signs of over-intoxication, and then engage appropriately to mitigate um, someone being in a position of crisis or overconsumption. Cannabis is a little, little bit more unique, um, but just like food safety and alcohol safety, courses have emerged. So we do intend that all of our, our, our staff, I don't want to use the term bud tenders because we're only going to be a bring your own as opposed to a, a point of sale destination. Um, but our canna servers or our canna sommeliers we already, because of my address, because of the news we've been getting around the work, guests come in and are a little bit more open about where's a good place to go? Where can I consume this? We can't give implied or expressed answers right now that work and that frustrates me. But I know we're getting close to offering that solution where I can literally now point to a space and say, welcome, and you can do that here. Whole goal of what I'm trying to build. You can't make a recommendation, but you can kind of like nod your head in the direction and be like, there's an arrow on the wall. If you just right. check the arrow on the wall, you'd probably figure out a solution. Now, I've recently finished my online course, still need to go for my in-person practical, but I've been studying the coursework for Gangier. I intend to uh, do, go through those same certifications for other groups that do emerge with the same level of credibility uh, because I want to know the knowledge base. For me, I've been in this, like I said, for this decade, that 115,000-mile road trip proved very enriching from my exposure to cannabis. I laugh. I, I learned about terps and, and strains, you know, a decade ago before we had markets still coming out of the legacy and made bubble hash in a forest one time, right? So, you know, I have been, I remember when open blasting was still a thing outside, even in a regulated emerging early growth cannabis industry, people were still open blasting hash in glass tubes outside. I remember that. We've come a long way. You know, if only rosin had been discovered first. I know you had ambitious aspirations when you looked at that hotel and said you were going to buy it and turn into a cannabis consumption lounge. What is one concept along the road that has surprised you that you thought one thing and now where we sit today has completely shocked you? Well, I'm surprised that we still haven't gotten to this path of consumption, not just here in Denver. I knew the reservations and frustrations. Elected officials in Denver very early on started expressing that we're tired of being first. They didn't want to be first. In and that's not true with the group we have today, but that was true with the group that brought Amendment 64 to, uh, to market and, and, and implemented it. That, that there was this, we don't, want to, we don't want that perception too fast and too far, right? Um, one of the things that surprises me is I always knew the curiosity from older consumers, but it's and they wanted to know if it made the pain go away in their hands if they used the lotions. But it's striking the comfort and curiosity of people that are coming back in, like I said, 55 plus with this desire to um, try it again. And then walking away impressed with that was not the weed I last interacted with, right? They're coming into a store. I always tell them, if you go in and the bud tender is not willing to give you time, 
walk out. Just walk out. And this is cautionary to anyone running a dispensary. If people come in and ask you questions and your culture and your intention and your desires, just grind them through and get them out, go open a supermarket. Go open a convenience store because that's your mentality and you're not wired for this. Because we have an obligation to make sure that consumers walk away with their questions answered. We offer now strains that can purportedly lead to unique experiences that are different from each other and discernible. And it's important that a guest walk away with an experience they find more appealing. Uh, edibles, making sure that start low, go slow. Making sure that a flavor or the uh, maybe it tastes a little bit like cannabis might not be the product for a novice. Right? And letting them ask those questions and then make, ultimately making their own decision. Um, but I say this because I was in a, one of the bigger named um, MSO operations here not too long ago in my neighborhood. And I was willing to go and bring guests when they come to town there, especially for the edible selection. But the butt tender just wanted to rush me through the door. And I said, well, I have a question. He goes, well, I need you to make a selection. And I said, that's not how this works. And he goes, well, are you going to buy something? And I said, no, not from you and not tonight. It can be a challenge when you see a lot of these MSOs come in and try to... Uh, create culture by hitting certain metrics. And I think that can... You're seeing that that corporate aspect of corporate America now trickle into um, these more established cannabis dispensaries that were around and then they kind of had some exits and mm -hmm. turnover. And now more corporate entities are coming in that are like, hey, you see this one cell on this spreadsheet. Like, If we get 10 more people in an hour in our dispensary, we're going to increase our revenue. Yeah, so, but I'm not a person who buys... I agree. I know what you mean. a person who buys four or five. I buy an ounce at a time every time I walk in the dispensary. Right. So, I uh, host a lot of, of, of musical friends uh, here through my house. Um, and I bring them... So I had, a, a, I had five people with me when he did that. Now, they all made a purchase. I didn't. Um, because I wasn't willing to spend my dollar there that night. No, I know. You know... And that's so, unfortunate. And since then, I have not brought any of my house guests back. They have a wonderful competitor an extra block away. And we now make the extra effort to go that extra block. Good. Worth it. Worth it. Chris, so, cannabis tourism has been held back by lack of state and local regulations. What state is next for you? You tell me, state and local regulation. You know, Nevada is a little big, but I am looking at the possibility of throwing my hat into their lottery in the hopes of, of, of striking gold or hitting a jackpot. I do think one of my next best places to go, and I have to be tepid of what I talked about because I have this Form C file with the SEC, and where I go next, you know, I have suitability for myself and the company here in Colorado. So maybe a Colorado ski destination would be a nice lateral move in the short term. So my vision is four-star hospitality. You know, this is overnight hospitality, but then it's membership and food and beverage. Private membership clubs peak and wane in popularity over time and was reinvigorated by a company called Soho House a little over 15 years ago. Soho House now has these very exclusive five-star type accommodations and clubs around the country. And they're finding or trying to find new ways to keep bringing in an audience to keep the cash flow going because private clubs can get stale. In my case, like I said, first and foremost, we're a hotel. At 9 to 11 rooms, we're undersized to the market, which means we should be able to grab a market, capture it, and fill our hotel with uh, these guests. If we do, we'll have a fun, invigorating lounge that'll have a cross-section of, of America and its culture and its economics in that room consuming cannabis together, which is a great space to build. Um, but where next? I know where I want to go. If you were to go to the republic.com website, you'll see that I own the 420hotels.com. I own the 420denver.com. I own the 420chicago.com. I own the 420boston.com. The 420nyc.com. The list goes on. And a total of 55 cities in America and around the world. And I do envision a dozen or more locations. Someone told me I had five to eight years to live one time. And I've now launched this crowdfund campaign taking experience I did for other people's visions 20 years ago and putting it to my own. I've got a five to eight year plan now to execute four-star accommodations in gateway cities with legally licensed on-site cannabis consumption lounges under 
um, our first signature Keystone location's name and using its brass relief to tell our story. Um, this oh, is yeah. the 420 like Hotels. I love it. And, uh, the brand that I do hope and intend to um, carry as the moniker to dozens of locations around the country and around the world. How is uh, the process choosing Republic to kind of go out and help raise those funds for expansion? I really love the democratization of equity crowdfund. A lot of people get confused because they think of crowdfunding around Kickstarter or that you're just donating or giving. And so the translation to recognizing this is equity has been one of the harder um, conversations, right? To just educate especially a cannabis population, that what I'm doing with stock certificate is identical to NFT or coin that we know today, but using that regulated market of the securities exchanges that's been around and regulated since 1933 and 34. So that's that's kind of you know been been a hurdle. But Republic was one of the rare larger national crowdfunding groups that would even consider a cannabis conversation. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a hotel. But even though I'm not selling it and I will just be a point of consumption under the definitions of cannabis as a controlled substance, a creation of a space to host its consumption is as onerous as the production or distribution of it. And then, so that means that I have the same concerns around 280E, the section of the US tax code that affected Al Capone, that denies to cannabis operators uh, normal operating cogs against revenue which creates um, exorbitant taxable impact uh, and is still that last real thing that's been unresolved that maybe Congress surprises us and does it before November. Uh, I like the optimism of surprise, but I, I tend to be <laughs> pretty disappointed when I'm hoping that Congress will surprise us. So slightly switching gears, public enemy number one. I'd love to yes, know about the idea of it and you know the, the big star in it. So t- take us through that concept. So I was uh, already kind of involved in the normal universe, had uh, Keith Stroop had become a friend and has been so instrumental to this narrative around drug policy since the 1970s. I was sitting in uh, my backyard here in Denver. I have this crabapple tree and I was sitting under the tree smoking some super lemon haze. Very creative strain for me. And I had tried to make film before the melanoma diagnosis. I had done well and it's what I wanted to, to pivot my life into storytelling. And when you get a short leash on life, you know, Stanislavski says it takes 30 years to master anything. And I didn't have 20 years, 30 years. I had five to eight. So I walked away from that, ran for office unsuccessfully, um, did a corporate reorganization, did other things, traveled that were uh, not dedicating a life to a 20-year plan to make film. Uh, But I never got out of my system. So I was sitting in the backyard and, and I realized that Though there had been a lot of documentaries on the war on drugs, and a lot of people had told the story that, that and I was very affected by a documentary called 13th that was specific to the 13th Amendment. And in it, it talked about specifically Georgia and how felony convictions have been used as a tool of racial and economic repression in that state in ways that maybe we haven't seen as egregiously in others. And yet they didn't talk about the tool that was used to create this criminal state and deny these individuals and, and, and community members a right to participate in elections. It was cannabis. And so uh, my goal was to not go back to the roots of cannabis with Anslinger and the transition from alcohol to, uh, to, to cannabis in the 1920s and 30s. I wanted to start in this modern era of federal drug policy and win the funding and win the war was formalized and declared. And that declaration of war against cannabis is Richard Nixon. I had the privilege of interviewing a man named Dan Baum, who uh, got Richard Nixon's staffer, uh, John Ehrlichman, to sit down and, and he said to him, what was it with cannabis? And he made it very clear that to the Nixon White House, this was their public enemy number one. And since they couldn't criminalize your right to breathe and speak and voice an opinion, but they could criminalize they could criminalize this. They could criminalize the inhaling of cannabis smoke. And on the exhale of that smoke, they could restrict your speech. And that's what they did. And that's why it was such a tool. And then a question for me was, knowing the movement of public opinion polls from 12% to the now almost 70% we're at today, we were at 52 when I started this film. Just broken the majority. And so I was curious to see 
if it correlated, federal drug policy, did it move with this movement in public opinion? And did public opinion gyrate as it got to 52, now 70%? And where did they interact? And where did they overlap? And was one a driver of the other? And in fact, they were very unrelated. They did not correlate that, in fact, sometimes public policy has little to do with public opinion. It has to do with reactions to unexpected things that happen in the world. I don't want to give it away, but watch the movie. It's 71 minutes long. About halfway in, you'll hear about the summer of 1986 and how one moment and one day sets in motion ideologies that are still now prevalent to today in the opinions of now President Joe Biden, who comes as a Democrat and a drug warrior as a result of federal drug policy that is enacted in the summer of 1986. Where can we find it? Public Enemy Number One. It's on Amazon Prime. You can rent it on Amazon Prime, or you can watch it on Tubi or Pluto TV. I think I just saw on the on on the waterfall that Discovery may have picked it up, so it may be on Discovery Plus. Uh, film One, Seattle Film Festival in 2020. I'm proud to say I won a Best Producer Award at Doc LA, which was our premiere in 2019, and our executive producer uh, was Ice T. Came on the film near the end, but added just. Um, heavyweight presence, of course, but from a cultural perspective, his relationship and where cannabis, music, and culture have all intersected, uh, he was just a potent voice on that topic. Yeah, pretty powerful ad. So Chris, 20 years from now, we will look back and say, that was barbaric. I can't believe we did that or experienced that in the cannabis industry. What is that? Barrack, 20 years. How about this, that we're 20 years into some significant reforms and policy in this country, but yet cannabis incarcerations and cannabis prisoners are still numbered in the hundreds of thousands. The number of arrests that still occur in a year, still in the hundreds of thousands. Um, I think it's an abomination. On the other side, I am going to make a statement. People are going to hate me, but what normal may have gotten wrong in 1977 was they thought that they could just dismiss the concerns of parents, even if they were wrong. And I recognize that for a child or anyone under the age of 21, anyone under the age of 21, their mother is going to get way more credibility and standing telling their story than they will. And as advocates for legal adult access and to protect these now consumer markets, whether they still be legacy or legal, and legacy being you know home cultivation and, and, and caregivers and other access that are not the very public and big store front regulated market, um, that we need to not go to war with mothers, stay in our lane of developing with integrity these industries, and if necessary, rising up if, by God forbid, we find out that kids should not be getting it in some of the forms that we now produce it. Um, I don't want to say there's anything there. I can just say that the mothers that are showing up now in larger and larger volumes are getting, are making progress with their message. And uh, if we try to fight them, again, we're going up against mothers that are credible. And when it comes to the protection of a child, there is no more credible individual than their parent, certainly their mother. Uh, and they can we cannot be at war with mothers. But at the same note, mothers that are concerned that might even be spewing false information need to be engaged so that when it comes to the space of 21 plus, that we don't roll back and that we don't allow bad policies like radioactive isotopes to be used in the flushing fluids of cannabis, which was literally proposed where potency, which is the biggest topic of conversation in Colorado, and will be nationalized soon enough as we get further down the road. I always say that when you say potency, 99% purity in a cannabis product with this potency, you're talking about purity. So if regulators want to now say that we have to lower the potency or lower the purity of these products, what type of adulterants do they propose that we use? Because everyone thought it was a brilliant idea to thin out THC oil with vitamin E and in vape pens, and this became a national health crisis. What happens if a one-off state like Colorado creates policy to create some new form to track 
these products proves to be a health concern, will the reaction be as swift and fast as that national reaction was to vitamin E? My concern is don't make us guinea pigs like that. And so that put us in a position to make the same mistakes big tobacco made with their cigarettes in terms of adulterating the contents inside of a cigarette. But that means the industry has to be in ways that tobacco never was transparent about its goods and bads that all industries, too many Oreos will kill you. You don't have to lie about it. Exactly. Nobody is dying of cannabis consumption. I still feel very confident in that statement. But it does not mean that all cannabis exposure is good for all cannabis consumers. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? I was told at a young age, don't think the world hasn't already thought of that. Be creative and go out there and do it, regardless of what the world tells you. Amen. I like it. All right, prediction time. Chris, how do we get cannabis consumption lounges to be as commonly accepted as bars in hotels in the future? By executing and bringing to market not something in an entry-level product or a roadside motel, but bringing to market three, four, and five-star opportunities and so a larger segment of the new still can of curious can experience cannabis in a way that is not back alley or that bag of smushed up bud we used to know. And that it's emergence and normalization happens in spaces that are very familiar. Kellen? I think it's a flywheel, right? I don't think that you take a handful of spaghetti and throw it at the wall like open, give out a bunch of licenses and see which one kind of is standing in 10 years. I think it needs to be kind of taken very cautiously, especially with um, so much psychological kind of stigma at, at, at uh, stake, if you will. And so I think it's a slow flywheel, right? Over the next five years, like Chris was saying, maybe a dozen open that are very, very high-end boutique and they create this persona and create this kind of expectation within consumers of this certain experience when they go to them. And then after 5-10 years, that's kind of now the flywheel's moving. Now we know that like, hey, this is the successful business model to implement this kind of uh, business. And then everyone's just going to kind of follow that. But I think... But that's not with, capitalism. And that is not what's occurring already. There have already been 12 that have opened and gone out of business. And the carcasses of failed business models will pile up in this space. Because will it work like a bar? There is a a business here in Colorado that really has now opened and is doing the half gram, uh, gram pre-rolled joints. You could argue though, Chris, that most bars, 90% of bars fail too, correct? that's, That's brilliant. That's, right? a, that's, that's a brilliant statement, right? Location, what you have there, all those other things become as important to just the fact that you exist. Right. Brian, what do you think? I I don't know. I was like listening to both your answers and it's one of those where when I write the question, I don't really think about an answer. And then hearing Chris talk and you, Kellen, I, I kind of like a little more puzzled. I don't know how we get there. I guess for me, I wonder if it takes people like Chris to kind of kick the door down and to demonstrate the value in the high-end experience to set the example for the others. And then I wonder if there's value, and maybe this is just my opinion, in the Marriott and the Hyatt's being interested in playing the games because with their type of money and their type of reach, they can help normalize it. Because I think the biggest thing to change consumers' expectation and make it widely accepted in society it's just widely seen, right? The more people see it, the more they must accept these opportunities yeah. as normal. Most cannabis consumers, even today, right? If you live here in Colorado, right? We don't have commercial places to go smoke. So you go home or you go to your friend's yard for the barbecue and you have a good time. And that is probably still going to be true because most people, especially the can of curious, the new consumer, they don't want to smoke out in public. They don't want to smoke at the show or take that hit of something they've never tried at the concert because they're afraid of passing out or how much hard it's going to be to get down these steps back to the car and back to the hotel. It's one of the reasons I like doing it in a hotel because that kind of closes the distance between 
you're having a greater experience than you expected and, and looking for a place to just crash. Right. And so I'm, I'm as curious to see, and I don't know if Hyatt touches it because most cannabis consumers are doing this as a form of relaxation, not as a form of socialization. And then they say 8% of us that smoke become frequent consumers. And all of us that are frequent consumers find each other in community very quickly uh, because we're friendly and generous. Um, so maybe we just overrepresent in that sense. Uh, I feel that I have a little of a window into this because, again, with the address of 420 and the earned media around the effort, guests are already engaging us. That 50 plus, 55 plus guest is already engaging us with their curiosity and with questions. Uh, so I do know that there's demand, that there is necessity at that level. Uh, but will we need cannabis lounges everywhere? I don't know. And will they be able to survive if they can't, you know, make the markup like you do in alcohol 400% and someone might come in and have five, six, seven drinks, where if you're going to uh, buy the gram or buy the joint uh, cannabis establishment, I bought a half gram. I had two friends with me. I brought some half gram home. Right? Yep. So will we consume it and move it in volume the same way? For me, I make my money on the beds. For me, I make my money on food and beverage. I think my inspiration is more Barney's Cafe as opposed to Barney's Coffee Shop in Amsterdam. I won't have alcohol in that space, but a fun food menu where you can smoke cannabis and eat and smoke cannabis in a lounge environment. We'll have a room that will have fusion. Uh, design of the room is going to be banquettes and build-ins. Uh, they'll have high-low tables so that we can set the room up either as a relaxed living room space for 42 people or pop those tables, throw dining costs down, and do blaze and brunch. Uh, we already serve an amazing breakfast to our hotel guests. It's something we already do and are well regarded for. I can't wait to add that then as another add-on experience. And it will be one of the few days that we'll sell a pre-priced, price-fixed ticket uh, to gain access to the lounge outside of our normal use and membership. Well, Kel and I will absolutely be at that day because we are salivating. Oh my goodness. So Chris, for our <laughs> listeners, they want to get in touch, they want to visit, they want to watch the film, and they want to invest on Republic. Where can they find you? Pattersonin.com is the hotel where you can book a room today, open over uh, nine plus years. Pinofilm, P-E-N-O film.com is where you can learn more information, see our movie posters, see the press we got in the Denver Post where they called me, quote, a character, uh, and pictures with iced tea. And then, of course, uh, Amazon Prime, if you would like to watch it and rent it, or Tubi or Pluto, where you can stream it with commercials. I still get paid, but you get to watch it with commercials. Um, The420hotels.com is about to do a, a new relaunch of our website within a week. Uh, but please go to republic.com. Uh, HTTPS colon backslash backslash republic.com backslash 420 hyphen hotels. And if you were to search Republic 420 Hotels on the internet, you would likely find our page very quickly. Uh, Benzinga recently gave us some great press where they told us that we are, the, that Patterson Inn, that my business, my product is the first hotel in America to secure a provisional license as cannabis, as a hospitality, as, as an amenity. I'm proud of that. And if you were to see our review in 303 Magazine, they said, and I quote, that the Patterson Inn offered the warmth of the world's best boutique hotels in bed and breakfast. It was important and foundational that we execute a high-quality hotel experience. For me, doing a historically significant building with the address 420 becomes part of our long-term story. And now adding the most exciting and unique amenity in America is just that next chapter. Uh, and I welcome anyone else, come on, get into this. But right now, getting suitability, structuring your entity, finding a suitable property, moving through a licensing process, whether it's rezoning or related to cannabis, getting operations that give you cash flow, revenue, and profitability before you add a unique amenity. This is where I believe there are some ingredients here that are positioning us um, for success here in cannabis hospitality, this unknown new frontier already littered with carcasses of great ideas. Uh, we intend to not be one of those carcasses. We intend to be one of those success, success stories. Love it. We'll link it all up in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking the time. This was fun. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.